When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today we are on the other side of the trade deadline. We finally made it. So with the exception of roster buyouts, the playoff rosters, roster buyouts. Um, Wow, what a way to start the podcast. With the exception of the buyout market, the rosters are set. I think the chaos of the trade deadline and everything that's happened in the NBA this year has just sort of scrambled my brain so if words are coming out backwards uh now you know why um today we are going to sit down with jackson frank an incredible writer for we're all very jealous of jackson's writing those of us who try to put words on the page the way he does just a fantastically gifted writer does a lot of nba draft stuff um also looks at nba stuff as well looks at nba stuff as well this is this is right up there with the all-time great starts to a podcast episode. Um, we will talk to Jackson specifically about a piece he wrote recently on Jason Tatum, first-time All-Star, somewhat controversial for some people. I've talked about him a decent amount before. I uh, want to dive into that piece with Jackson. And, of course, we will talk about Zion Williamson, what we've seen from him in his first... Oh, he's still only played a couple hundred minutes in the NBA as of recording this, and some thoughts on the white-hot Damian Lillard, who is just taking the latest turn at carrying the scorching scoring baton in the National Basketball Association, averaging like, what, 45 or 48 points per game for a stretch here? Yeah, he had a two-week stretch over six games where he averaged 49 points per game, multiple 50-point games. He started with a 60-point game, and he has been scorching hot, so we will talk about Dame. But before we bring in Jackson, we get to all of that, I did want to discuss the Houston Rockets, who are now my new favorite team. I cannot turn them off when they are on the television set. They have no big men anymore. This is the strategy that they they are zigging when everyone else is zagging. And I've heard people say, well, there's a little... There's a component to the Golden State Warriors, uh, the dynastic Golden State Warriors of recent years where the Warriors had this so-called death lineup, this small ball lineup, and Draymond Green was at center. And the, The thing about that lineup, though, is it was about getting your five best players on the court, number one. Number two, having versatile forwards and wings who could switch and guard and had length and and to a certain degree strength. And then having the guy in the middle, Draymond, who, yes, even though he's an undersized big man and he's 6'6", 6'7", whatever, is incredibly long-armed, physically strong, and very quick helping into the paint so you can play this scheme and, in fact, have tremendous defensive success along with the offensive slant that you create by having more skilled players on the court, more 
shooters on the court, more ball handlers, more passers. So you're double dipping in a sense. That's what made that lineup so incredible. On the flip side, the Rockets, I don't really see the Rockets as mimicking that. I see what the Rockets are doing as akin to the 2006 Suns. The 2006 Suns, also coached by Mike D'Antoni, by the way, they ran out of big men at a certain point in the season. Kurt Thomas was injured. Amari Stoudemire was out for the whole year. They, as they were wont to do during that period, they did not stock the cupboard with appropriate reserves at times, and they were just positionally void of big people by the time the playoffs ran around. And so once Kurt Thomas went down, they were playing Boris Diaw at center. And then they would have Sean Marion at the other forward trying to sort of plug the leak because he was a good defender, he was athletic, you know, a good 6'7", 6'8", very springy and long, so you can switch and grab some boards. But other than that, it was, you know, Steve Nash and shooters. Leandro Barbosa, Jim Jackson, Tim Thomas was another guy, you know, 6'9 or so or whatever, but this is not really a big man or an interior player. This is a, you know, Harrison Barnes type kind of 6'8 or 6'9 forward. So this has been done before. It's been done before by Mike D'Antoni. I think the first time I really saw, (laughs) the first time I really saw this as an extreme zigging versus zagging the 2001 NBA Finals. If you recall, the 76ers famously won game one where Allen Iverson had 48 points, hit that step back over Teron Liu, then stepped over him. We, we all know this story. It was the only loss that the Lakers had that postseason in the midst of an incredible run down the stretch. And in that series, I think it was game two, just off the top of my head, he may have done it at other times, and I, I'm not sure if he played them any minutes in game one. But in Los Angeles, at the beginning of that series, Larry Brown, the league had all these big men stocked up to deal with Shaquille O'Neal. So, for instance, the 76ers not only traded for Dikembe Mutombo um, midseason that year to give them a defensive anchor around all these scrappy guys and Allen Iverson, but they also had players like Matt Geiger a big physical bruising kind of player that doesn't really exist anymore in the NBA. Maybe Geiger was skilled enough that he specifically would exist, but you just don't see many players like this. And so he was in there to bang with Shaq, and usually teams had multiple guys who were employed off the bench just to bang with Shaq and create fouls and not be overwhelmed. But in this series, something that Larry Brown did zigging instead of zagging is he played like four guards in a lineup against the 2001 Lakers with Shaq so in game one yes it was game one I have it here in game one he busts out Raja Bell Allen Iverson Aaron McKee Eric Snow next to Dikembe Mutombo so they still had a big man on the court and there were a few other versions of this, like Jumaine Jones, who was kind of a, you know, wasn't really a big man, another one of these Tim Thomas-type forwards. There were different versions. Eric Snow could go in there. But it was just basically a bunch of guards out on the court and a big man against this traditional Laker team, not only with Shaq, but with guys like 
Robert Ory and other forwards and big players like that. And what blew me away is that in the couple minutes they were out on the court, they either stayed even with the Lakers or outscored them. Which, of course, the sample's so small, it's not suggesting that they could be better than them. But it was, at the time, forget, you know, just not having two big men. Just like all these small players on the court, like an undersized mid-major or small college team going up against a behemoth and, and just in in their spots holding their own you know not getting destroyed on every single rebound being able to actually get to the basket and finish not being completely overwhelmed on the defensive end and obviously that was almost 20 years ago and that's still stuck with me and so I, I kind of find myself in the same place now watching the Rockets and why I can't take my eyes off them because they are in a way taking another step forward with an extreme version of that kind of approach where, hey, they might get crushed on the glass and they might give up things defensively because obviously they have no rim protection whatsoever. But they do have a decent amount of sort of physical strength for the way teams switch now to prevent guys from just getting right under the rim with post position. Also, the league seems to struggle with entry passes. Um, Big players don't seem to know how to seal and use their hips to create an advantage down on the block when they have a mismatch. Some of that is the way the officials are refereeing and calling those plays now. There's a lot, like if someone falls down, they just call an offensive foul. But there's also an art as a big man or post player to creating that space and carving it out. So what you see so many times is when a guy gets a mismatch on a small, when a big gets a mismatch on a small... They lob it up to the big man because that's the entry pass, apparently. And he catches it two, four, six feet off the block. And what would happen, you know, back in the 90s or early 2000s in these situations, if you could get a mismatch, you would often get a seal and a catch within five feet of the hoop. And you can just turn and shoot it over the smaller player. So the Rockets are very good at not allowing those catches. And the league doesn't seem to be in a place where teams exploit them. And so if that's the case... And you are kind of making that bet. You're placing that bet if you're D'Antoni and Daryl Morey and the Rockets. Maybe you're not giving up that much defensively. You're never going to have a high defensive ceiling probably because you don't have a, a rim protector. And you may be vulnerable on the glass. But James Harden is more like a old school power forward defensively at 6'5 and very stout and likes to hold his position in the lane. And he does so well. Um, Gordon and Russell Westbrook are athletic and strong and Westbrook can get up and grab rebounds and Covington you know I really like Robert Covington as a defensive player but not a rim protector per se so the question is do you have enough on defense to then strain people and create a higher level offense that actually has some variability that it threatens the opponent I think they might I'll, I'll, I'll say this about the Rockets, and then we'll get to the conversation with Jackson. I think the trade was brilliant from the standpoint of risk versus reward. They probably weren't going anywhere with the way the roster was constructed without massive, massive breaks. And now they've at least created an element where the ceiling can be a little bit higher. Maybe certain mismatches, this crazy small ball lineup that they're playing, allows them to punch above their weight. Of course, if the roles were reversed and they were a high seed, you know, the variability opens up the idea that they could 
be picked off and upset, but I don't really think that's the position they're going to be in come playoff time anyway. They're probably, uh, what's their best case scenario? It's probably going to be around the three seed. They might be in that four or five range. And to get one of the Los Angeles teams in the second round seems pretty likely if you're in that position, assuming they get out of the first round. And I think this gives them a little bit better chance to spring an upset or find lightning in a bottle versus what they had earlier in the year. So I did want to mention that because at the very least, regardless of the analysis that I just provided, on the entertainment scale, they're off the charts for me. I just can't take my eyes off this team playing a bunch of guards and forwards and, you know, not starting anyone. Elias had the stat the other night, not starting anyone over 6'6 for like the first time since 1963 or or something incredible like that. So anyway, trade deadline rockets, enough about that. Uh, let's bring in today's guest, Jackson Frank. He is uh, from, boy, he writes all over the place. He writes at Dime Up Rocks. He writes at The Step Back, a lot of college basketball, um, obviously a bunch of pro stuff that he watches. And he writes at The Athletic covering Gonzaga's men's basketball and if you want to read him at The Athletic, you can get 50% off the subscription price and a free week trial if you sign up using the link theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That's theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. That thinking basketball pod part is important. It lets them know that you listen to the podcast. They are kind enough to sponsor today's episode. And if you are a listener of the podcast, you know not only how much do I enjoy The Athletic, but I consume them, consume them as part of my daily content. Uh, you can open up the app. You can customize the app in the morning with – well, you don't have to customize it in the morning. I'm just saying I open it in the morning and already have it customized with the writers you want to follow, the teams you want to follow. Not only do they have every sport, but within a sport they sort of blanket the teams locally. So you can get local coverage for all 30 teams – Follow the writers that you want to follow, get the stories you want to get. You open it up in the morning, they come in, you read them, you learn, you, you find out all the great stuff. John Hollinger writes over there. I, I love reading his stuff. The perspective of that former Memphis Grizzlies NBA front office eye that he provides. You have guys like Seth Partnow, David Aldridge, lots of huge names. I feel like it's where all the cool kids are these days. It's theathletic.com slash thinking basketball pod for that 50% week, uh, 50% off the subscription price and the free week trial. Okay, let's get to the conversation with the one and only Jackson Frank. Yeah, I'm excited to talk some hoops. Appreciate you having me on. So let's let's talk about your most recent piece, a guy I have done a decent amount of work on and talked about in the last two seasons, and that's the Celtics first-time All-Star, Jason Tatum. What, what, what was sort of your takeaway from digging into him deeper and the conceit of that article yeah i mean I, you know obviously the celtics are on tv a lot and they're easy to watch um but watching teams specifically in some games and then looking at just him just kind of some of his defensive attributes I, I didn't quite realize how smart and instinctual and good he is off the ball defensively um obviously you know i'd seen a decent amount of, of what he's able to do and uh, in that kind of side of the ball, but the way he's able to kind of force teams into making the decisions he wants and having those steals come so easily to him, it seems like a lot of times the ball just falls into his lap. He's off to the races, um, was really impressed to me. And then just his reaction time with that length, yeah. um, 
playing kind of on the when stunting on drives and being able to stunt and recover was a big thing I took away. Um, and just a master of positioning was the thing that, that really stood out to me, um, which is really impressive for a guy his age. And that's obviously I think it's taken a step up this year, but it's been something that's mostly been part of his game since he entered the league two years ago, which is really impressive for someone who's just about to turn 22 um, and nowhere close to kind of his prime on either side of the ball. It's it's unorthodox to me in the sense that he's so effective around the nail, around the foul line. Like you don't think of a lot of impact defenders, especially ones who are six eight, six nine long forwards who aren't necessarily buttering their bread by being rim protectors or lockdown wing defenders on the ball. But he's just to me he's so good in that space. And that space leads to the things that you just alluded to, right? Like jumping passing lanes, disrupting all these actions and being in a position where if he needs to zone up or guard two or slide a step forward or away or stunt, he's just really, really good at those. Really, really good at taking away the first option the offense wants to do. And then when they resort to the second one, he's right there for the turnover or the steal or the deflection or something like that, which is really impressive because a lot of times it's kind of one or the other. You know, you help on a drive, they make the kick out to the wing and then they reverse the ball around. There's an open corner three. But Tatum is so good at taking away the interior option and then going back out to the the exterior, the perimeter, and kind of just taking the shot clock down. Um, and then, like you said, zoning off, especially off the ball. Um, I posted a couple of screenshots on Twitter, and then I also linked them in my, my piece. Um, just the ways it will play between two shooters off the ball as a weak side defender and pick and rolls a lot is super impressive. Um, there was one play, I think it was a steal against Indiana. Um, Sabonis was on the short roll, and he was playing between, or Tatum was playing between TJ Warren and uh, Miles Turner, and there was no real good place for Sabonis to go with that ball. And Sabonis is one of the better passing big men in the league. Um, but Tatum just took away both options to end it with a steal. Um, just kind of that ability and that, that functional length is really impressive. He doesn't have an overly long wingspan, but it's it's kind of enabled by his reaction time too um, because he's never really late on those reads and those reactions, which is really, really impressive as an off-ball defender. Do you see him as being in consideration for an all-defensive spot at the end of the season for a forward? Yeah, I'd have to think more about it. I didn't necessarily explore that part of his ceiling this year in my piece. Um, but just looking at uh, impact metrics-wise, um, I think I had, like, I think among non, like I used kind of the phrase non-interior uh, rim-protecting guys, I think he was like sixth or seventh in defensive player impact plus minus, which isn't by any means the all, the be-all, end-all um, of a guy's uh effectiveness but i think that is a good starting point or a good a good complementary tool at least and in conjunction with what he's able to do and how much better the celtics are defensively with them on the floor um there's certainly a case um i'd have to look again more kind of closely at the candidates yeah exactly um, i i have the same sort of question but i but is... i would at least i wouldn't by any means just immediately toss him out of the the conversation he's at least kind of deserving of making a case or kind of seeing what his case is Okay. Yeah. I think that's where I asked because I'm trying to get a feel for sort of the, how you see that impact. It's a, it's a tricky kind of impact to evaluate even once you dive into it, but the impact metrics seem to, you know, think he's, he's very, very helpful in Boston, not just on defense, but on offense. Uh, and you had some insights there as well. Yeah, and then just in generally speaking, that was kind of my goal of this piece is to understand why he grades out so well in these impact metrics and figuring that out because I think a lot of times people just say, oh, he, he's a, he has good player impact plus minus. That means he's a top 15 player. But I want to kind of figure out what exactly he was doing well there. Um, and offensively, the thing I took away is 
he's one of the better high-volume pull-up three-point shooters in the NBA, and I think today it's fairly obvious what that's able to do for an offense and how it stresses the defense so much. Um, so last I checked, I think he was shooting like 37.5% on four attempts, four pull-up three attempts, and only the only kind of wing size players that were replicating that was Paul George, um, which is, I mean, that's just such a valuable shot to have for a 6'8 guy, and he's especially good in those step-backs. He's got that fairly high release point which is really hard to guard. Um, and then he grades out well in isolation and pick and rolls too as an individual scorer. And those are two kind of the most frequent on-ball usage and play types uh, a ball handler kind of needs to excel in, I think, to be effective, um, which is kind of what stood out to me. Uh, you know, obviously there's he still has some struggles as a finisher, and then he probably relies a little bit too much on the mid-range game in terms of not quite being as efficient as he needs to, to really make that an efficient part of his game right now. But... Um, the pull-up three and the pick-and-roll scoring uh, and the way he's able to kind of snake those pick-and-rolls and get guys on his back. Um, he's improved a lot there in terms of getting to the rim and finishing. I know earlier in the year, um, Max Carlin, a uh, big Celtics guy, big Celtics writer, was tracking that, and he couldn't finish anything at the rim and pick-and-rolls, and now it's really picked up, and he's he's become a lot better at sneaking those pick-and-rolls and getting the defender on his back and kind of you know putting him in jail is the phrase a lot of people use. Um, those are the things that really stood out to me, and you know, when you can get to the rim, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on the defense, and then you have the you know, ability to step back and if they're overplaying it and defending the, the drive, step back and hit those pull-up threes. It, it makes it really hard for defense to guard you and contain you in those ball screen actions. What do you make of the, the biggest criticism I hear levied at him is his overall shooting efficiency, his true shooting percentage, uh, which is below league average. It's coming up, I think, as the season has progressed, but in general, probably 2020 not going to go in the in the books as a high efficiency season for him my contention has always been that he is actually one of the rare players who I think that undersells his offensive impact enough that I would take it grain of salt is not the right term here but I wouldn't be as negative on his scoring efficiency as that number and a lot of that to me from watching the Celtics is he's one of the probably with Kemba one of the two guys who They'll go to at the end of the clock as a you know third option when the primary and secondary break down, and he's taking tough shots in those spots, and therefore that's going to naturally erode your efficiency a little bit. You 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 buy that? Do you have other thoughts on the the general criticism toward him about his lack of efficiency? Yeah, I think is so much of it is con not it's context and role dependent. Um, like you said, he's taking so much, so many shots as an on-ball guy, but naturally it's kind of going to lower your efficiency. Um, another thing that I came across is Mike Zavagno has his shot quality metric, and he's in the 94th percentile in three-point shot difficulty, which I think is really fascinating. Some of that probably, too, is a little bit reflective of his inclination to take tough shots at times, um, not necessarily always being able to create open shots. But at the same time, I think, like you said, he is forced to take a lot of tough shots late in the clock, um, and he's doing a lot of on-ball work. Um, and so the thing I would love to do if I had a time at some point is to kind of figure out an average true shooting mark for a guy who exceeds a certain amount of usage and a certain amount of play types uh, via synergy and kind of figuring out what would be an expected efficiency for him to have in his role rather than just saying, okay, here's... The league, league average true shooting is 56.6% or whatever. Um, and Tatum was 2.2 full points below that, so he's a below average offensive scorer. But whereas juxtaposing it with other guys who have similar roles to Tatum and figuring out kind of where exactly 
we should expect him to be um, because he does so much work in pick and rolls in isolation. And he's doing a lot of spot-up work too. Um, I think last I checked, he was kind of grading up poorly as a catch-and-shoot guy on threes this year, which is interesting. But yeah, that was my takeaway too, is he has to take a lot of tough shots and he's doing so much work as a creator that you can't just look at the average true shooting. It doesn't really show the whole picture. I mean, ideally, you know, you'd want Tatum to also be great at on-ball difficult isolation scoring, but the you know my take on that is that well that that's going to level him up naturally as a player, and you're no longer talking about like is this guy a top twenty-five or top thirty player? It's more like is he a top ten player or whatever would come with that additional skill. So I think maybe to the to the theme of that piece that you wrote, it's more about. We have these natural inclinations when we look at a guy. Hey, how's what's his on-ball defense look like? You know, can he be disruptive with his footwork? Um, you know, what's his ISO scoring game look like when I watch the ball? But Tatum has so much value outside of that that it makes him sort of a tricky eval for the classical quote-unquote eye test. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that was part of my goal. You know, is I've been very complimentary of of Tatum on Twitter, and you don't want to get stuck in the eco chamber of Twitter, but. I just thought it was an interesting thing. I had some time, and I, I liked writing about him. And you know, the All Star candidate, the All Star reserves being announced soon. And so, just looking at exactly why these these advanced metrics like him so much, you know, I think there is an inclination to push back against those if they don't match the eye test. So my goal was to pair the eye test with the impact metrics and explain, you know, here's why he's top fifteen in player impact plus minus this year. Here's why he grades out in real adjusted plus minus so well this year. Because he does these things on the basketball court, it's not just the data being skewed a certain way. Um, and yeah, going back to kind of the larger point at hand about his offensive efficiency, you know, if he, you look at his rookie year when he, I think he was just under 59% true shooting, but so much of his stuff was coming on spot ups and transition, like almost 50% of his stuff via synergy was there and he graded out well. Um, but yeah, if you get, if you, in two years or a year from now, Tatum is at 22 points a game on 58% true shooting then like you said, we're working with a guy who isn't just a fringe all-star. He's a he's a guy who should be starting games and be a top 10, top 12 player discussion because that's kind of the point you get to with what everything else is able to do. Once he gets that scoring efficiency above league average, he's in if well above league average. If he's kind of maybe approaching 60 at some point, um, you're talking about a guy who's super, super valuable, who impacts the game on both ends to a high level and there aren't a ton of those guys who are able to do that. You know, I, I think I use the phrase, he's a two-way star, and I think a lot of times that is overused. But for me, I define that as just someone who makes a legit impact, positive impact on both ends. That's something that Tatum does, uh, has done this year and done mostly throughout the entirety of his career. Yeah, and piggybacking off that last point, I, I do think there is a fit with the way the Celtics have their roster constructed and the lineups this year where Tatum can come in on defense and... You know, Jalen Brown's a different kind of defender. Uh, Gordon Hayward's also 6'8", but I think between the three of those forwards and anyone else, they rotate into those positions. He's 6'8", long, off-ball. He, he kind of provides the best value for how they want to guard certain situations, how they want to play weak side, how they want to play pick and roll, how they want to guard the nail when they you know set up against certain coverages. And I think he's the best at that on that end. So when he's off the court... They're kind of missing an element there. And then on the flip side, when he's on the court as well, he adds, along with Kemba to a large degree, sort of a secondary guy who, when they swing the ball, because they have a lot of side-to-side stuff in that Celtics offense, when they swing the ball, Tatum can, again, add value. Like, I love your call-out of the step-back three. That's a really 
decent self-created shot. He's also gotten much better at getting to the rim or, you know, better about shot selection in general. And so I think those two things together in a single player are one of the reasons why on that team you see such monstrous, all those PIPM, RPM, all those numbers are coming from huge raw plus minus impact in his on off when he's on the court versus off the court. Not sure if you have anything else to add or, or push back on that. No, not really. I, I think I think sometimes analysis in general penalizes players for fitting well within a team. But I think Tatum does so many things well and his t- skill set is so crucial that we shouldn't necessarily... And yes, he's in a great spot, I think, overall. But I think that should be not necessarily used as a negative against him. It's just his skill set is so good that, you know, like his his he is so valuable with the Celtics too that, that yeah, he, he benefits a little bit from playing on a really good team with other really good players. But um, a lot of what he does is indispensable. You know, you couldn't just put Jalen Brown on the nail and have him stunt all the time or have him shooting step back threes. Um, because like he's just not like Tatum just isn't a guy who, who grows on trees. You know, he's not someone who you can just go plug and play um, or find someone else who's maybe 20% worse, but can provide 95% of the impact. Um, so that might be a little bit of a tough, I probably didn't articulate that very well, but no, you're, I um, think, I think I got your point. Two way wings grow on trees. That was your, <laughs> that yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think he, he is someone who just, he benefits from a situation, but he also, what he does allows himself to benefit from the situation and makes it tough for the Celtics to really replicate anything he provides when he's off the floor, which is a testament to him. And it's not like, you know, it's not like a team is just missing a spot up shooter when he, when that guy goes off the floor, they fall apart. Um, Tatum's skill set is much more unique and valuable than that because it's tough to find anywhere else in the league, really, for the most part. So speaking of tough to replicate and value, you're in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> there's, there's a guy up there who's pretty good, Damian Lillard. What have you made of his recent outburst, his, his scoring bonanza and some of these crazy games that he's having? I know you have thoughts on him. Yeah, it's it's just honestly been been wild. I haven't been able to watch all the games, but I tuned in for a lot of last uh, Friday against the Lakers. And very, I mean, the easy cliche but is true. Is it's very Steph-like. Um, the degree to which he is just making shots in an absurd rate this year is is, is incredible. Um, the stat I found, and I don't know if it's been updated recently, um, or it has been updated. I haven't checked it in the last few games, but um, like 83% of his shots are unassisted, which is absolutely bonkers it's like hard levels among high level shoot high level uh scorers like i was looking at some other guys like kd uh during his mvp years the year he's having like 30 plus a game was like 55 60 percent um obviously he's a little different because he catches the ball in the mid-range lot and kind of shoot over the top which makes it an unassisted assisted basket kind of in that sense but um a guy like Giannis too who t- does a lot of driving from the perimeter and whatnot is like 55 60 percent as well um like 83 percent is just like unreal, like the degree to which he's having to self-create shots. Um, and, the, and he's averaging 30 a game on, uh, I think he's at 60, he's at 62% true shooting. You know, we just kind of talked about uh, the nuance of true shooting, but like end of the day, a guy who's creating that much of his own offense and averaging 30 a game and doing it on almost 6% better uh, than league average true shooting is just an absurd score an offensive player. And then you, you combine that with his, uh, near three to one assist to turnover ratio. You're looking at uh, one of the best offensive seasons from a guard, point guard in recent history, really. So I had him tenth in my top ten player video last year. Is that about where you saw him as a player 
heading into this season? And then what I'm really leaning into is, do you think he's materially improved this year? Is this just hot shooting? What's what's sort of your assessment from a larger scale, you know, that grand scheme of player hierarchy about what we're seeing with Dame right now? Yeah, I think 10th was about right. Um, that's probably what I would have had him. I probably would have had him in that kind of that that tier of, you know, like PG, Embiid, Jokic, um, you know, depending on how much you value per game, maybe Embiid a little higher, um, despite his injury limitations. Um, but yeah, I think 10th was about right. I would still probably stay about there. Um, I think some of it is hot shooting, but to his credit, he's also shooting better from two-point range, which I think is interesting. He's at like 53% on two-pointers, where he's mostly have around 48-50% um, in his recent scoring prime, which is kind of an interesting note. Um, well, but then, you, yeah, I mean... Do you, the, the, what do you think he's done yeah, better specifically yeah. this year? Let's let's frame it that way. Yeah, I think, I mean, it seems kind of simple, but he's shooting more threes. Like, I mean, that's just... It's, I mean, he's shooting, he's shooting better on them, too. Like, I mean, I think his three-point rate is up to almost 50%, where it's more hovered around 40% previous. So this year, he's at uh, he's at 49% of his threes are coming, or shots are coming from three, whereas kind of mostly been around that 41 42% kind of threshold in previous years. Um, and he's shooting 39%, which is a career high. So when you shoot a career high on the more efficient shots, you're just generally going to be better in terms of scoring efficiency and scoring impact. Um, and it just seems like he's kind of really embraced that, you know, I keep coming back to Steph, but that Steph just kind of just let let those threes fly and realize how much it bends the defense and it stresses the defense, um, which is making it easier somewhat on his teammates. Obviously, they've struggled with kind of continuity injuries. They don't have a ton of talent around him. But yeah, just kind of realizing that if you shoot one or two more threes a night, teams are going to be cognizant of that. And when you make them, um, they're going to start trapping you half quarter, trapping you way beyond the three point line. You're going to create better looks and easier looks for teammates. Yeah, you keep alluding to Steph, and so just to add some color to that, uh, Dame is taking. I don't have the number in front of me offhand, but he's taking more like thirty foot threes, these super deep Trey Young shots, and making them at a higher percentage than ever before. And whether that's hot shooting or not, you know. Uh, I, I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of hot shooting, but to your point, it is adding an extra dimension to his offensive game, which is difficult to deal with. And, and I mean, he's just uh, completely on fire right now. Yeah, exactly. And I, I would agree. It's, it's some hot shooting. I don't think he's going to be quite at that 40% type threshold given his three-point volume. But even before this two-week hot stretch, he was still, I think he was, like his relative true shooting was still, the best had been either of his career or up there, um, which I think is a testament kind of altering his shot profile a little bit to improve his overall efficiency. Um, so yeah, I don't quite expect him to average 30 a game on 62% true shooting. That's kind of Harden levels. I don't think he's quite the level of offensive player that Harden's been throughout his career. But yeah, I think that's the big thing is just shooting more threes and, and making them at a higher clip, which obviously is not very insightful analysis, but um, I think sometimes it can be tough for guys to embrace shooting more threes because it, um, it just can kind of, you look at something that comes to mind is, you know, people would love for Tobias Harris to shoot more threes and especially the Sixers need that, but he hasn't quite been able to embrace that quick trigger mindset where his game has increased his volume and his range for sure. And, uh, you're really seeing it pay off with his overall impact on offense and then his, in his individual efficiency. Cause, um, yeah, his, his impact numbers offensively are, are pretty, pretty nutty this year. Um, and then you look at, I mean, you just even looking at like his volume as a pick and roll score, an isolation score, and pull up score, 
he's not just elite in terms of volume, he's among the best in terms of efficiency too, which is really impressive because a lot of times you just need to shoot or take a lot of those kind of high caliber, high difficulty shots for, and make a decent amount of them for defenses to respect you. But Dame is making a ton of them and shooting a ton of them, um, which just makes him that all, all that more lethal as an offensive player. How do you feel really quickly about their playoff prospects? Where they sit today, slightly on the outside, looking in Memphis with the eight spot. I I am relatively optimistic. Um, even if Nurkic isn't the same player he was last year before the injury, top thirty, top forty overall player, um, just an NBA caliber big man who can soak up minutes at center is going to be huge for them because um, right now they're working with Hassan Whiteside who's turned it up um, and played better recently. And then other than that, they're just kind of scrounged for minutes at that five spot doing a lot of small ball stuff. Um, they've had to play Nasir Little, Jalen Horde for before the trade or before they raise a trade acquisition. They were playing Anthony Tolliver there a lot. Um, so just someone who's a capable big to defend other bigs and protect the engine extent is going to help. And I think just his general presence, you know, I don't want to get too much new intangibles, but um, just seeing him back on the court after that gruesome injury should kind of maybe prop up the guy's spirits who were there last year to an extent. Um, I don't necessarily think they're a lock for the playoffs, but I do think they're going to be in it the entire way, even once Dame cools off and doesn't have to drag teams to wins. Um, just getting a guy back like Nurkic, who, can, who is a viable NBA big man, is going to help a ton because they've been short on viable NBA big men this year. So one of the other teams, Mem- Memphis uh, is in that position currently as we record this eighth. Portland's behind them. One of the other teams behind them just got a shot in the arm, and that's the Pelicans with Zion Williamson. In the handful of games that he has played so far, how are you feeling about Zion? Yeah, he's been. It's been interesting the way the Pelicans have used him. They haven't really kind of tapped into his self creation a ton, from what I've seen. Um, they've really just allowed. They've really just posted him up a ton and said you are quicker and can jump higher and you have incredible touches and interior finisher. Um, that we're just going to throw these entry passes over the top that no one else can get, which has been fascinating to watch and. Uh, I watched the the game on Sunday against against Houston last week, and there was one play where Zion kind of had I think it, I think it was Peter Tucker, I don't recall exactly, but he had whoever it was who was guarding had him kind of pinned, and they were trying to throw an entry pass, and James Harden was guarding Drew, who had just set like a flex screen for Zion to get post position, and then Drew was coming up, and I think there was like a pin down screen for Drew for three, and Harden just let Drew run free so he could help deny the entry pass. Um, which is wild, and they didn't get anything out of it, but Drew had a clean look at three um, that they kind of parlayed another open shot they missed. But just the degree to which teams are already respecting Zion's interior score is pretty wild. And that was probably, I think, six games in or five games into his career. Um, just his, his finishing ability is fairly absurd already with his coordination and touch. Um, that's kind of been the big thing that stood out. It's just the degree to which he's able to finish against length and size and strength with his kind of blend of athleticism and skill. So let's talk about modes of using him, because that's something that's been floating around my brain in these first few games he's played in. I mean, what I see is a lot of downhill stuff. They're trying to get him off curls, um, moving downhill with without the ball, and then on a catch he can make that incredible explosive dribble where you know he, he kind of hops and he kind of matrix teleports like maybe no player we've ever seen. Um, that's one method. Uh, the second thing, you know, spins, lobs, post catches where he can just take a power dribble and bully up into someone that you alluded to. And the third one, which is kind of all in the same vein, but it feels a little different when you watch the games, is 
you know, the NBA now has so much space on the court when you have multiple shooters out there. They have Redick, they have Melly, they have, you know, the, the lane is more open. And one thing he does frequently off the ball, especially weak side stuff, is he'll just kind of like knife or dart into a little pocket in the middle of the court. And with a lot of NBA players right now, we don't think of that as like a really scary high percentage place to catch. And with him, those catches at like 10 to 15 feet where he's got a little momentum and his guy is just a half step behind him. I mean, this seems to be kind of the most explosive, dangerous, efficient way for him to score right now. So so I say all of that to say, you know, what do you think is an ideal way to use him? He seems to be such a unique specimen heading toward the hoop. Yeah, I, I think the way the Pelicans have used him thus far is perfectly fine. I mean, it's averaging 26 per 36 minutes uh, on 58% true shooting. But I would like to see them get him some more face-up touches. Um, you kind of talked about the 10 to 15 foot range. Uh, the thing he does really well, especially from the left side, because obviously he's, he's left-handed, uh, is those rip-throughs are so quick and wide and powerful that like, unless you're right on it anticipating it, you're not going to be able to stay in front of him because he covers so much ground. So I'd like to see them use some more of that. I think he had one bucket I saw against the Rockets on, on Sunday. Um, I imagine he's had a few more. Uh, but that's the one that sticks out because it's the most recent Pelicans game I've watched. But yeah, kind of letting him create a little more. Um, it can be tough because it's kind of a delicate e- ecosystem there. You know, you have Brandon Ingram who likes to have the ball in his hand. Drew likes to have the ball in his hands a lot as well, too. But I, but obviously Zion is their most important player moving forward. So I, I like to see them explore kind of some of his offensive versatility more. What I see from just looking at Synergy page, which isn't the be-all, end-all by any means, but, you know, 35% of his uh, looks are the post-ups or offensive rebounds, and their 17% are cuts, and then another 14% are transition. So that's a lot of just kind of being in the right spot in the right place, which is similar to what he did at Duke. Um, but then trying to use him more as a, a pick-and-roll guy, he's, he's had 13 possessions there, um, seven shots, so that's just about two a game this far. But just really trying to kind of explore the depths of what you have with Zion, um, and I know they've kind of tried to be a little careful with him not rushing back um, in terms of that the injury he had. Um, you can still see he's not quite as explosive as he was pre-injury. I think that'll come with conditioning and whatnot. But yeah, just bottom line is just explore what you've got with this guy because he has the potential to be a generational score in terms of efficiency and how he affects the defense with his rim pressure and, and all that. And the offensive rebounding there is even a little skewed. It's going gonna, it's gonna to skew all of his like percentage of possession numbers because half of those are his own shots at the hoop <laughs> yeah where he just mm-hmm. you know jumps but it's, we're like in full Moses Malone Charles Barkley territory here with him just like missing little bunnies and instantly hopping right back up and getting his own board I, I think the 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 stat I saw as of oh I can't remember what game it was like Mil- the Milwaukee game was maybe game six or seven for him and I believe he had grabbed 50% of his of his misses around the basket which is just yeah Scott Scott Rafferty had a piece on, on NBA Canada uh I was on the, was the first of the month um and it was like he's rebounded half of his missed shots and then I think somebody did the math or maybe it was in the the piece I don't recall is like he's either grabbed his own misses or made his shots like 80% of the time up to that point which is just just absurd so yeah like you said his efficiency might be a little skewed because he's he's still scoring in more possessions than just, you know, shooting 55% right. from the field. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, that offensive number is probably going to be absurdly high for most of, most of his career. And yet a, and yet another example uh, for our, our theory discussion earlier about where true shooting, there are nuances, and it's like 
his true shooting will be down. But in this case, this isn't. We're not talking about offensive rebounding that is purely off ball and independent of some perimeter guard shot twenty feet away or something. This is like these are his scoring attempts at the hoop, and it's just a quirk that he's going to rack up so many missed field goals because he's just tipping them back up and in. Um, negatives for me before because uh, I want to hear your thoughts on what you've seen defensively I want you to talk me off the defensive ledge but before we get there offensively his shot I, I've been thinking about his shot since he was at Duke and I think you certainly saw more of him last year than I did so I'm looking for any insider progression you have on this his shot to me looks like it is just a limited shot period like unless they overhaul mechanics over time I don't really have too much faith in that shot. Um, what do you What do you think? Is that a fair assessment? Are you more optimistic about it? Um, tell me Tell me what you think about his shot. Yeah, I would mostly agree. It's it's kind of a weird like kind of shot put type style, and it's mostly flat. Um, I do think I don't know. Maybe this is just kind of a weird subjective thing, but I do think it's a fairly like easygoing shot, and so um, I don't think a lot of his shots are like. I uh, mean, you know, the, the guy that he kind of maybe compared to at times is Ben Simmons, whereas I think a lot of Ben Simmons kind of shoots a harsh shot. I think Zion's a little softer. Um, so I think I'm, I'm confident in if teams, if he does play the perimeter more, that he'll shoot some threes. And you saw that especially against uh, San Antonio's debut a few weeks ago. Um, but yeah, I don't think he's ever going to be someone who defenses are really going to respect as a shooter. And part of that is just because he's so explosive and dominant as an interior scorer, so he kind of gets punished there. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't expect him to ever be someone who's shooting five threes a game and and making 38% of them. But um, I do think at times if he is able to handle the ball in the perimeter, he could hit catch and shoot shots um, on occasion to keep the offense, or excuse me, the defense honest. But I don't know if he'll really, I don't know if that's ever going to be a high value proposition for him, given how well he's going to be as an interior scorer. So um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not very optimistic on it. Um, less so that I was maybe a little too optimistic coming out of Duke. I thought at least he has shown a little more willingness to shoot than, um, you know, if I'm going to talk about Simmons, I mean, he's still there. I don't want to, I don't want to parallel those two guys too much. Uh, they're very different in terms of how they impact the game and what they do. But, um, yeah, I, I mostly agree with you. I don't think the shots are going to be a super reliable weapon. And, and like I said, a lot of that is going to stem from just how dominant he is as an interior scorer and teams are going to want to wall off the paint there. So the one number for me to look at actually more so than, you know, three point shooting or outside spacing or anything like that was his free throw percentage. And I look at that shot, and I'm anticipating him, especially when he rounds back into shape. He's still not quite in shape as of when we're recording this. And I just anticipate a lot of free throws in Zion's future. And so now you say, okay, you're a high, high free throw guy. Um, Like when you look at young Barkley, I mean, he just got to the line like almost no one else in NBA history. There are some parallels there. And so the difference between you know, 64, 66%, that kind of range. And like being able to get up into the low and mid seventies is going to have a, a pretty sizable impact on scoring and, and scoring efficiency. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's the big thing I, I yeah, I, I pulled up Barclays free throw rate and yeah, I didn't realize how, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you're four seventy point seven four one free throw rate, which is absurd. Um, but yeah, I mean, Zion's, Zion's done pretty well to draw fouls. Um, I think he's just below, uh, 50% free throw rate, which is pretty good, obviously small, sample, but I think a lot of that bears out on film too. You know, he's super aggressive inside teams are going to hack him, especially if he's hovering below 60%. 
from the line. Yeah, I mean, ideally you want to get into that 70% range or even kind of, I don't, I don't think he's ever as going to be even as good as Giannis is at the free throw line, but if you can kind of reach that Giannis level of 70% or so, um, that will really improve his overall efficiency and make it tougher to stop him because as long as he's shooting 58% or whatever from the free throw line, teams are just going to hack and hack and hack on him there. Um, and he's shown a willingness to embrace contact, which is obviously a good a good start in itself. But um, yeah, ideally you can get that, that free throw percentage up and um, however they go about that I think is interesting because yeah, I, I think there's probably going to need to be some mechanical tweaks. Um, I, I think the place to start, and I'm not a shot doctor, but would be to get more arc on it because it just does feel like such a flat shot that if it's not just going through the, the net, um, it doesn't have a great chance of, of going in because it's going to clink off the rim or something like that. So um, that'd be the place to start. I should maybe try and improve the arc a little bit. Um, maybe once he gets his legs underneath him a little bit again, he can he can get you know just bend his knees more and uh, get, elevate the shot when he releases. But um, for the most part, yeah, the offense, this individual scoring has been uh, about what I expected overall. I'd maybe outpaced a little bit coming off the injury, but um, this is most of the Zion we saw last year, aside from a little bit of subdued athleticism. I think a cause for optimism on the shooting side is that they do have a pretty decent shock doctor there in Fred Vinson, Mm -hmm. who just this last summer has really seemed to work wonders. Um, I was going to say overhauling, but it's not a full overhaul. Tweaking Lonzo Ball's shot significantly and really helping his accuracy from outside. And obviously the incredible jump of Brandon Ingram uh, on his shooting, both from the line, the mid-range, three-point shooting. Yeah, that's that's been that's incredible. I mean, just looking at those numbers. I mean, yeah. He's, I mean, he's outside shot to be at fifty forty nine. He's not going to get there, but I mean, the, coming off where he was his first three years, that's unheard of to think that he's going to be a forty eight thirty eight eighty five guy this year. Yeah, I think it's probably the greatest single season shooting improvement in NBA history. I ran a ran a piece on that earlier, right at right at the very beginning of the season when he came out of the gate on fire. Um, and so, I still believe it holds up as probably the best example of a single-season improvement. Okay, let's go to the other side of the court where... um, Now, I I know the low-hanging fruit here is that he's not quite in shape and he's a rookie, but I want you to tap back into what you saw at Duke because defensively for me, with Zion, if I'm fair and honest, he's kind of been a disaster on defense. Uh, You know, he's between looking lost and effort and um, even just the way he's kind of sliding it's like those movement patterns that maybe were lurking and stalking and physically overwhelming in college you kind of realize in the nba against a lot of sets like aren't going to be as physically dominating now he's uh, you know he's he can't get into fifth gear yet because he's coming back from the injury but that's sort of my high level takeaway from watching him on defense um jackson give me give me all the optimism push back against that (laughs) No, I think that's that's a worthwhile criticism, and it, it certainly has been what matches my assessment as well. Um, yeah, I think the, the the optimist side is he definitely played with a higher motor at Duke. I, I think talking to some people is maybe his relentless motor was a little overstated because of how athletic he was. He's able to make plays even without you know sure sure fire one hundred percent motor all the time. But um, yeah, I, mean, I think he was a better disruptor at Duke, and I think. I mean, you're looking at a guy, you're kind of seeing a guy who's not played a lot of organized basketball since late March, um, and kind of the game is a little quicker for him uh, than, than he's used to, obviously. Um, 
Yeah, I, 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 but I am a little more optimistic. I think he's going to be able to, to guard two or three positions. Um, yeah, the lateral mobility has really been underwhelming for me. I don't think he was ever someone who moved like a Ben Simmons or even like a Giannis on the perimeter, but um, I did expect it to be better um, than it's been thus far. I'm, we can chalk some of that up to injury, but um, I some of it just to kind of feel like you have to go back to Duke where he was a defensive disruptor and made plays, mostly played hard. Have you have you updated it? it have you updated your assessment of him as a defender based on the limited stuff you've seen in summer league and then this year so far? He averaged four steals slash blocks per game at Duke, which is like pretty absurd considering how good he's offensively. And obviously, those aren't the only ways to impact the game. And um, but I but I do expect him to be a bigger defensive disruptor than he's been thus far. Um, so maybe yeah, I'm a little less optimistic about his perimeter. Mobility, maybe I overstated that a little bit. Um, sometimes it's tough to kind of assess that change in athleticism and speed from the college game to the NBA. But um, for the most part, I still going to be a pretty dang good defensive playmaker uh, and and figure things out there um, because they're just plays where like the, I there was I don't know I don't remember which team I was watching him against, but um, he was guarding like a weak side corner shooter and the ball swung along the baseline and he just like stared at the ball handler and like didn't even put a hand out and it was like I felt like watching Zion last year he would he would get that left hand out and, and swipe the ball and get a steal or at least knock it out of bounds and give a corner three or something. So those plays have been kind of commonplace this year, um, which is unfortunate. But overall, I am kind of trying to temper that side. Um, and over and just generally with Zion, because I, do, I definitely don't think he's anywhere close to the explosive athlete we saw last year. And he's already been incredibly, incredibly bouncy and jumpy this year. But that just kind of speaks to how high level of an athlete he is there and, um, so I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic overall, but maybe I did overstate how good he could be defensively. I don't I don't I never really really wrote anything formal on Zion because I think yeah, it was just it was everyone kind of knew at that point. But um, maybe it, it, there was some kernel of me that thought he could be kind of an all defensive player. I wouldn't go there anymore. Uh, maybe that was mis misinformed, but um, I still do think he's going to be a pretty good uh, player on that end because he's strong and he's generally smart and has good instincts uh, or show good instincts at Duke. Okay, I think that makes sense. I think that's kind of what I was interested in your in your take on because there was certainly last year this groundswell of thought that, okay, this guy could be a spectacular defensive player, small ball five, typical four, switchable, athletic, strong, rim protection, rebounding. Um, and I, I'm with you in that as I see him – put in the NBA game understanding that he's going to get way better just with experience I'm not necessarily looking at a guy who's gonna be like a dominant defensive player per se uh, but more like a guy who's going to be a generational unique type offensive player and then the question kind of becomes like well how how far does the defense come along does it boost him up does it hold him back is it kind of neutral at least that's where I stand after after you know, what did he play? Nine minutes in summer league and um, a handful of games, a couple weeks of games so far as we we record this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, like I said, I probably just overstated it and maybe a little bit caught up on the Zion hype, even though I watched a fair amount of his games. But I do think he's going to be a fine interior defender, and um, at some point those instincts are going to come back. Not to the degree of averaging two steals and two blocks a game, um, because I mean that. Regardless of regardless of kind of what else he would do, that's I mean that's just incredible production. But um, enough to the point where he's going to be 
putting up steel and block rates of north of one because right now one steel rates at one percent and block rates below one percent. Whereas last year I think he was at three point nine steel rate, five point eight block rate, which is incredible again. So so given that we I think agree that he's pretty you know, he's he's not where he was athletically last year and he's been fairly limited by what we've seen so far this year coming back from the injury looks like he's uh, you know carrying more weight what kind of uh, what kind of optimism do you have what are you looking for in his second year can, can we kind of project forward yeah i think the 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 goal there um because that's kind of because that's this like more like a, a true rookie year for him it feels like yeah i mean uh, the goal for me there would be simply to, to see more of that defensive playmaking instincts that we saw at Duke. Uh, maybe some added offensive versatility that doesn't just revolve around, Zion, you're the most athletic guy on the floor and you can finish with the best of them. Here's the ball that only you can catch, um, which I think we'll get more of that later in the year, but um, more consistently. I'd, li- I'd like to see some more self-creation from him. I think he, he's got it. His handle is fairly good for a big. I think it'll work well against other guys who are defending him that aren't able to kind of pry the ball away from him, say like a guard might with quick hands, but that's kind of what I'd be looking for. Um, and then I don't know if this is unrealistic or not, but just, I, w- I would still like to see the, the three point volume increase a little bit. I don't know necessarily if it's the most prudent thing, but I think for him to reach his ceiling, it'd be cool for him to at least maybe force some defenders to guard him who just instinctually close out on an open three point shooter. Um, the smart ones probably won't because they'll realize what Zion at the rim means for their uh, chances of getting a stop in that possession. But um, that's what I'd be looking for. But again, it's just so early that I could still see a lot of these things playing out at certain points throughout the rest of the uh, regular season. Big thanks to Jackson for taking the time out to share his thoughts on those topics. And once again, if you want to follow Jackson on Twitter, it is at Jack Frank underscore JJF. You can find his work at Dime Rocks, at Dime, Dime Rocks, Dime Up Rocks, uh, The Step Back, and as mentioned, The Athletic. The Athletic, of course, 50% off the subscription price and a free week trial if you head over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Big thanks to them for supporting the show. A special thanks to all the Patreon subscribers who help make this podcast possible. If you sign up over at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, that's patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, you not only help make this podcast possible, but you help me make videos. There's written content for subscribers, analysis throughout the season. You get access to proprietary stats we have a community where we talk basketball a lot of historical discussions if you're interested in those kinds of things Uh, fantasy teams and players in different years and who did what and so that's patreon.com slash thinking basketball if you want more information head on over there that is it for this episode thanks so much for listening all the way to the end i will speak to you in the next episode next week And in the meantime, between time, uh, I had a teacher who once said that right before test. He said, in in the meantime, between time, it is prime time. Uh, That's not what I was going to say. What I was going to say is, uh, in the meantime, of course, I hope that you are having a great day.